All right, of course, we are continuing our study in Jeremiah. Hard to believe, I think this is our 31st session. And boy, we are just flying through the book. But um, we might pick a short book like Ruth or something after we get done with Jeremiah, just so we can say we accomplished something. Uh, we get into these 51-chapter books, and it takes us about two years to get through them. But, uh, of course, Jeremiah, you know the background. He was a prophet and a patriot, and he was called to a job that he really didn't want, didn't like the message he was called to preach, uh, and it wasn't well received. But for four decades, he was faithful to do exactly what God called him to do, to preach repentance to the people that were supposed to be God's people but certainly in reality in their hearts and in their behavior were not. But as a result of his ministry, he was accused of treason. And as you'll see tonight, he actually spent time in jail on several occasions as a result of it. Of course, it's important to remember, as we touched on last, um, I think it was uh, during Sunday school this last week, you know, these three prophets uh, that are all delivering such important messages. And, and as such, we have considered them as major prophets, although the reality is there aren't any minor prophets. They all were called of God to do the job that God had called them to do and all did it to the best of their ability. But these three men were contemporaries preaching. You know, uh, We'll look a little bit tonight at some comparison between Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Uh, we'll look in Daniel a little bit tonight. It's amazing these three men were preaching and teaching the same truths, although they didn't have the benefit of email uh, or even a Pony Express postal service. So it's very evident that the Holy Spirit was communicating uh, to them and through them as they are uh, literally weeks away from each other, at least from Jeremiah to Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon, they were weeks away uh, travel-wise. Uh, Daniel and Ezekiel were probably just about two days uh, travel away. Uh, nevertheless, these three men were all preaching and teaching at the same time, one in Jerusalem, one in Babylon, one in Tel Aviv. And then we know that there were three sieges to Jerusalem. Actually, the city fell over 19 years. Uh, the first siege didn't result in its destruction. The second siege didn't result in its destruction. Tonight, as we pick up in chapter 32, we will be in the third siege, 18 months of uh, just beyond our imagination, horrible conditions inside the walls of that small city of David, uh, and then ultimately the fall and the destruction of the temple and the buildings and everything else. Tonight's uh, lesson takes place right at the tail end. We are literally, as the Scripture will tell us tonight, in the 10th year of Zedekiah's reign. And at this point in time, they are under siege. The city is surrounded, and they are beginning to feel the effects of that surrounding. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, we saw a little bit of it this last year. You know, many people in the United States, I think, stayed largely in their houses and are just now coming out, if you can imagine. You know, we, we really kind of lived life relatively normal. But, I mean, even I think uh, most people here probably had about a week or so that they were kind of locked up inside while we were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, but can you imagine being inside? Imagine being, imagine being 102 pilgrims on the Mayflower for 66 days. Uh, you know, and imagine being, uh, you know, just our group. Imagine if just this group in here tonight was stuck inside the church for 18 months. 
and we weren't allowed to leave the church for 18 months. Well, that would get, you'd go stir crazy, you know, and, but imagine these people stuck in the city and all that they would be enduring uh, as uh, water became scarce, as food became scarce. Well, we will get into a little bit of that this evening. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1, and the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, same guy. Think back here. We know that the city first was uh, subjugated in 606. We are now, and that was in the first year of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We are now through Jehoiakim, uh, almost to the tail end of Zedekiah. We are now in the 18th year. We don't know what month but we are in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign over the world at that time as he was a global dictator. And we are also in the 10th year of Zedekiah's reign. Uh, we know in chapter 39, verse 1, that the siege began in the 9th year of his reign in the 10th month. We know from 2 Kings 25, 7, uh, and the, the date that's called Tishabav is the day that the city actually fell, and it was an 18-month siege. Well, verse 1 tells us that we are, if you look at uh, chapter 39, verse 1 says, in the ninth year, in the tenth month uh, is when the siege began. We are now in the tenth year, so at least three months into the siege. So at least three months uh, locked inside the city, and no doubt, uh, whether there was a scarcity yet, there certainly would be the fear that a scarcity of supplies was on the horizon. And it was at that time, so some three months into the siege, look outside the walls of the city, and I'll show you a view here from a moment, in a moment, what they would have probably been looking at. And the, the city was surrounded, and they are inside, and Jeremiah is feeling the wrath of Zedekiah for a message that he had preached. And then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. So the, the city is, is surrounded. Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. It's interesting. Uh, the pictures that you see up there are from a, a, a site that's called Gallicantru. And that is Caiaphas's home where Jesus would have begun his mock trials the night of his crucifixion. And now, of course, it is a, uh, a I believe it's a Greek Orthodox church. And you can go in and tour the uh, archaeological finds are there. It's truly remarkable. But you see in that upper picture, there actually was a, 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 a prison or a place to hold prisoners down in the basement of um, uh, Caiaphas's house. And you see that hole there, you could let a person down via a rope into a, a, a stone chamber, which served as a prison cell. <laughs> what good home anymore doesn't come with a prison cell in the basement? Uh, so obviously, something along these lines, it wasn't the worst conditions that Jeremiah found himself in. Uh, however, he was in a secure environment, uh, locked up inside the court of the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had locked him up, saying, why do you prophesy? And he really makes a, an accusation of a false prophecy, saying, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. 
And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. In other words, they'll be face to face, eye to eye, and mouth to mouth, and he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I deliver, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not win. Because God says again, I am bringing this judgment. Now, it's interesting that Ezekiel was getting messages from the Lord at the same time. And as letters were crossing paths, whether it be by intent from the prophet being sent to Tel Aviv or from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, or whether it was their leaders that were getting copies of these letters and sharing them, there was a perceived contradiction which both prophets were called out on, but both, in fact, proved to be true. Ezekiel was told this, that the prince, by the way, that was Ezekiel's disrespectful reference to Zedekiah, because Zedekiah was really not the rightful heir to the throne, although he was of the royal family, uh, Jehoiakim was, or Jehoiachin, was the heir to the throne, or actually should have been the king, and he had been hauled away captive to uh, Tel Aviv when Ezekiel was taken. So Ezekiel never refers to Zedekiah as king, but the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. In other words, he's going to pack his bags when it's dark. He's going to try to escape from the city. They shall dig through the wall to, to escape thereby. He shall attempt to hide And nevertheless, God says, my net will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he's going to die there. Well, there was a perceived discrepancy between the prophets, because there was this statement that he was going to be taken captive to Babylon, but there was also this statement that he would never see Babylon. Well, we've got a problem there. Obviously, these guys aren't both hearing from the Lord because those two messages aren't consistent, except, in fact, they were, and they were very specific in their fulfillment. We see in Second Kings, when the city finally fell, that Zedekiah tried to make a break for it. He, in some of his security detail, fled in the dark of night, escaped out of the city, just as Ezekiel had referenced, basically digging a hole out, trying to escape without being caught. And he made his way down the mountains of Judea uh, toward the plains of the um, uh, the uh, uh, Jordan River Valley towards Jericho. But he was captured there, verse 5 tells us pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So the king was basically caught by himself with very few of his security detail, and obviously he had to give up. So they took the king and brought him to King Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, and there Nebuchadnezzar pronounced judgment upon Zedekiah. And the last thing that Zedekiah saw before they put his eyes out was the execution of his sons. And then he went as a blind man and a slave to Babylon. So he, in fact, did go to Babylon and spend the rest of his days as a slave. However, he didn't see Babylon because the last thing he saw was the execution of his sons, and then his eyes were put out. So, in fact, there wasn't a discrepancy. Both 
Ezekiel and Jeremiah were exactly correct in what they said. However, uh, Zedekiah obviously misunderstood them, and uh, he wound up uh, paying a price. Verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field, that is an Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Now, in the Jewish economic system, uh, you could in, sell yourself into debt, but you could only sell yourself into so much debt. You could borrow up to basically the equivalent of six years of your labor, and then you would work off that debt until it was paid in full. You also could mortgage your property. Uh, you couldn't sell your property. The property was to stay in the ownership of the specific tribes. Uh, so you couldn't sell it, but you could mortgage it for the value of that property, basically what we would call an, an, a land lease for up to a period of 50 years. But then in that year of release, everything went back uh, to its original owner. Now, that wasn't a situation where the lender got taken advantage of, where, you know, he lent you $100,000 on a $100,000 piece of property, and next year was the year of release, and he, you had to, you know, just free him of his debt. No, the value of it would have been based upon how many years you could use the property. So there is no place in Scripture where socialism is promoted or where, where the government mandates the theft from some person who is working hard to give it to somebody who is not working hard. However, there were ways where a person could borrow up to a certain limitation. However, the lender was also always also protected. And you weren't allowed to charge interest if it's a situation where somebody had a need. Uh, however, you could charge interest if it was a non-Jew and or in a business relationship. So, for example, let's say that I needed, you know, I was short on money. I, I, you know, just had some things beyond my control, and uh, the air conditioner went out on my house, and, and I was short $500. And, and I went to Terry, and I said, Terry, I've got to get the air conditioner fixed. You know, can you lend me $500? Well, as a brother in Christ, the way this was established, Terry would be willing to give me the money. However, I don't want to take from him because that's money that he's earned. So he gives me the money, and I pay it back, though without interest in that situation. Now let's say I had a wonderful business idea, and I said, Terry, I've got a great business idea. I think we go and start this little shop over here in such and such location. I think we'll, we'll make some money. Uh, would you lend me money for this business deal at, at, at 7% interest? Okay, that's a different story. But they had a, 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 a charitable system uh, that was very efficient, and one of the ways was they could... Do, again, do a land lease of their family property. Now, as you look on the map up here, you see Jerusalem, and just a couple of miles to the north-northeast of Jerusalem is what we would really consider a suburb called Anathoth. Now, with this, oh, shoot, yeah, right there. I think I've got that. I think that's correct. No, that's correct right there. Uh, with this picture on this map right here, you see the red circle is actually the Babylonian army as they have surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Now, you've got Jeremiah's cousin coming to him, wishing to do a land lease to Jeremiah 
for property that they have in Anathoth. Now look at the location of Anathoth. Look at the location of the Babylonian soldiers. And look at where Jerusalem is. Is this a shrewd business deal that Jeremiah is getting himself involved in? Absolutely not. It'd be like being a Frenchman uh, selling some of your property in France as you were escaping from the beaches of Dunkirk after the Germans had already occupied the territory. That was the situation that was going on here. Now, obviously, my conjecture is that this was obviously three months or four months or five months into the siege. No doubt supplies are becoming more valuable. You know, a value of a product is based upon its availability as one of the things. And as foodstuffs were getting uh, shorter, the value or the cost of foodstuffs would be increasing. No doubt uh, Jeremiah's cousin needed some extra money to buy some groceries. And Jeremiah was instructed by the Lord exactly what's going to happen. He said, your cousin's going to come to you. He's going to have a, a, a really bad land deal for you. However, I want you to, to go through with it. I want you to, to, uh, to lend him the money and, and purchase this property. So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, I want you to buy my field. I beg you. That property that's in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, the state of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine. And again, if, if um, for example, I had, uh, let's say I had sold uh, or had done a land lease on our family property to pay a debt that I owed. Uh, a near kinsman, my brother, could at any time have the legal right to come back and redeem that property since he's part of the family. So that's what's going on here. You, Jeremiah, are a near kinsman. I would like to do this uh, business transaction, this real estate deal, uh, through you and with you. Then I knew, Jeremiah said, that this was, in fact, the word of the Lord, because the Lord told him before it happened. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, which was in Anathoth, and I weighed out 17 shekels weight worth of silver in order to complete this transaction. And I subscribed the evidence. In other words, we signed the deed exchange and we sealed it with the official seal securing the, the scroll. And I weighed him the money in the balances. Again, the balances are how you would weigh out what 17 shekels of weight actually was, 17 shekels of weight of silver. So I took the evidence of the purchase, the deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. So they had a public record, and then they had a sealed record that was kept down at the county courthouse for all practical purposes. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Nereah, the son of, good luck with that one, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of witnesses. Folks, that's one of the things that establishes the legality of anything is witnesses that will testify on your behalf. Uh, that's why there was no guilt except there be at least two or three witnesses that would testify. That's why we have witnesses that attend a wedding. You are to legally, the purpose is to serve as witnesses. Yes, I was there. I, I was there when uh, Paul entered into the covenant of marriage with Cindy and 
I can bear witness to that effect. So that's what was going on here. They had witnesses there in the prison area that were able to sign off on this deal and give testimony that it was, in fact, legitimate. And that was sealed. You see that that um, clay jar down there in the lower left-hand portion of the picture. You see an ancient scroll from this era that it was discovered at Qumran unrolled there. And then what's really interesting is that seal up on the top left part of this slide is actually the seal of Baruch. And they believe it would be the same one. Now, they can't prove it, but based upon the dating and some of the uh, inscription, they believe that this is, in fact, the same Baruch that was the amanuensis or aid to Jeremiah that they discovered there in the city of David. And actually, it was uh, found at an antiquities dealer in 1975. But it's amazing, all of the artifacts that give additional proof or credibility to the people that we have read about in the Bible. They actually find these archaeological discoveries that, well, should encourage us, help encourage our faith, uh, that we do not have blind faith, as you've heard me express on many occasions. And I charged Baruch before these witnesses, saying, Thus saith Jehovah Sabbath, the God of Israel, Take these, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and that which is for public record, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the houses, the fields, and the vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So why is this passage so important? that God was compelled to tell Jeremiah that this was going to happen, and he was instructed to carry it out and do exactly as was being requested of him, and that this be stored away, and quite frankly, that this occupy 15 verses here in chapter 32 of the book of Jeremiah. Well, for one, this assured Jeremiah and the Jews of their promised return to the promised land. But it also contains a prophetic implication, what helps to explain what we read in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, as you have heard me share in past weeks, in Jewish hermeneutics, a passage of Scripture can be interpreted, and by by the way, very disciplined interpretation. And, And these interpretations will not contradict but they can have four different degrees or ways of interpreting a passage of Scripture. And as you have heard me say before, we do this all the time as as pastors, as Bible teachers. Uh, For example, you know, we could preach a message or we could talk about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, being tossed into the fiery furnace. And while they were in the fiery furnace, there was a fourth one with them and brought them through this fiery furnace. Well, that is the Peshat. That is the literal uh, explanation of what went on. That was the details of the situation, the historic truths. We could make an application 
and say something like this. When we find ourselves in the furnace of affliction, when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, when we might find ourselves when the, when the fire of intensity is at its hottest and we feel like we're all alone, Miss Judy, as we're diagnosed with cancer and dealing with cancer treatment, we feel like we're all alone, we're not alone. Just as one like unto the Son of God was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know that the Lord is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Okay? That's an application from that passage of Scripture. You could also conjecture to a certain degree and make a prophetic application. You could say, okay, that the furnace was turned up. It says it was at max heat, or the expression is seven times Well, the word time can also mean a period of time, one year from Passover to Passover, seven times. You see that this one that was a type of Antichrist, this global dictator named Nebuchadnezzar, built an image of himself, demanded it be worshipped, which by the way, uh, there's a reference in Revelation of something similar that's going to happen. And you can see that Daniel was out of the picture, gone, could be a type of the church raptured away. And then you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these faithful Jewish boys that refused to bow down and worship the image, found themselves enduring this seven years of wrath. Okay, you could make a, a prophetic application. So you see that one passage of Scripture, we've just very briefly gone through three different possible uh, interpretations of it. Well, this is very typical uh, from a Jewish point of view. And an example that I've showed you in past weeks that is so clear was from Hosea 11.1, a passage of Scripture that very clearly is talking about God rescuing uh, Israel out of captivity in Egypt. However, Matthew, this disciple of Jesus, made a, uh, a, a uh, rabbinical application, uh, a, a midrashic interpretation of that same passage of Scripture and said that it referred to Jesus when Joseph was warned by the angel to take Jesus and Mary out of Herod's domain and go into Egypt and stay there until Herod is dead. And then, of course, after Herod's death, they returned and eventually moved to Nazareth. Well, Matthew said that Hosea 11.1 references that. Well, let me ask you, who was right, Hosea or Matthew? Both of them were. Exactly. That's the point I've taken a long time to make. But Jeremiah, I believe, is a type of Christ. He is a pattern. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Christ is referred to as a man of sorrows who also wept over the rejection of the city and wept over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. With Jeremiah, Jeremiah held title deed Actually, I should say the legal title to property that was rightfully his, but was currently under the dominion of an usurper. And one day, a near kinsman of Jeremiah would, in fact, redeem that land to its rightful owner. Does everybody stick with me as I just made those? Okay, now let's take a look at that. Let's see how that could, in fact, apply to Jesus, and I believe does apply to Jesus. I think this explains, as I said a moment ago, what we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. First of all, 
God created the earth and gave dominion to Adam, but man sinned and the land was cursed. The expositor, Lehman Strauss, in his commentaries made this statement. He said, the earth and atmosphere around it have been in the hands of an invader. The cruel usurper is Satan. He wrested it from Adam, whom God had given dominion over it, so that today the earth is in Satan's power. You say, wait a second. Is the earth really in Satan's power? Isn't Jesus Lord of all? Well, yes, Jesus is ultimately Lord of all. And Jesus does have the title deed to planet earth, which I believe is that seven-sealed scroll in Revelation 4 and 5. However, in the meantime, we know that the land is cursed because of Adam's sin, what it tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. We know that Paul makes reference to us in our suffering, also pointing out, Paul says, beginning in verse 18, I reckon, as if weighed on a scale, that the suffering we experience of this present time is not close to being compared with the glory which shall be revealed not only to us, but in us, in our glorified bodies. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Okay, let me, let me say what that. Is it evident when you walk down the street? Can you just walk down the street and say, oh, there's a child of God. Oh, there's a child of God. Oh, there's a child. No, we're all in these Adamic bodies of flesh. And not only do we not appear any different to a lost person at first glance, sometimes our behavior might not be much different. However, there is going to be a point in time where we will obviously and evidentially be children of God in our glorified bodies. For the, and even creation itself awaits the day when we are manifest as the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to this curse, not willingly, not by anything that the creation itself did, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together even until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for what's to come, the redemption of our body, the glorification of our body. Let's continue on this topic, this subject line. Did Adam really lose uh, authority over the earth to this deceiver, this usurper that's temporarily running things or seeming to run things? Well, after Jesus' baptism, he was immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Actually, they believe it's a mountain there. I didn't put the picture in there. Just north of Jericho. And he was there for 40 days and fasting and praying. And then, of course, the devil came and tested him. One of the temptations was found in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil shall take him into an exceeding high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and say unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou shalt fall down and worship me. Now, <clears throat> if I said, I'm just going to use Terry tonight, because he's, he's here with us tonight. If I said, Terry, 
uh, I'm going to give you, um, let's say Terry was working, let's say mayor, Terry was mayor of Edmond. And I said, Terry, I'm going to, I'll give you the title deed to the Devon building if you will make sure and get our building plans for our next construction phase passed without a hitch. In fact, if you can just rubber stamp the deal right now, I'll give you the title deed to the Devon building. Now, knowing what you know about me and my ownership of the Devon building, would that be tempting to Terry at all? No, because he knows I don't own the Devon building. Therefore, it's not much of a temptation because I really can't carry through on what I promised. However, if I did own the Devon building, then that would be something for him to consider, whether, he, whether that would be the price of his integrity. For me, mine's much cheaper than that. I will sell that a whole lot less than that. Well, obviously, this wouldn't be a temptation if the devil didn't have the ability to actually do what he was tempting him to do. So I believe this passage, along with, for example, 2 Corinthians 4.4, which references the devil as the god of this world, Ephesians 2.2, which references the devil as the prince uh, and power of the air, and John 16.11 references the devil as the prince of this world, I believe that this is in fact true. The devil currently is running too much of what's going on on planet earth. Now, who owns it? Well, the Lord does. He owns the title deed. However, just as the Babylonians were occupying property that Jeremiah actually legally owned, and one day his near kinsman would in fact redeem it, which was part of the encouraging promise to the Jews, we also can make that same application to planet earth with our kinsman redeemer, who had not only purchased us, but has purchased and redeemed all of his creation. Now, let's go from here to Daniel chapter 11, because we are going to work our way up to, and quite frankly, we, we are only going to get about 15 verses into Jeremiah 32 tonight, but this is too good of a study to just pass over. In the book of Daniel chapter 2, of course, we have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and you all know the story. Nebuchadnezzar was new uh, in charge. He had taken over, and many of his staff were servants of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. So with this dream, he used it as a brilliant method of, of gleaning who his magi were that were legitimate and who wasn't. And he called for his wise men and said, listen, I need you guys to tell me what my dream was. I had a terrible dream last night. I don't know what it meant. And they said, well, certainly, your honor, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it for you. Well, anybody that's been to the Oklahoma State Fair has seen those palm readers and everything else. Everybody can play that trick. Uh, I was, uh, never, I'm not, I started, to, I started chasing a rabbit. I won't do it. Back in here. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I've been to the Oklahoma State Fair as well. I'm not falling for that either. So here's what you do. You tell me what my dream was, and then I'll know that you really have the ability to tell me what my dream meant. Well, these Chaldeans, these, these wise men all ratted themselves out because they claimed to be able to commune with the gods, small g, plural. However, they stated at that time, well, nobody could know what your dream meant unless they could talk to the gods. Well, I thought you could talk to the gods. Well, obviously they couldn't. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar realized that they were frauds and was going to have them all executed and their houses bulldozed. <clears throat> well, as the sheriff is going around arresting the magistrates, the, the magi, the wise men, 
they came to, to uh, Daniel's house, and Daniel said, wait a second, uh, let us ask the Lord about the interpretation of this dream, and the Lord revealed the dream to them. And it was this image, this, this, uh, this statue, this, this, uh, he- this statue with a head of gold, which represented the uh, Babylonian Empire, the arms of silver, which represented the Medo-Persian Empire, a belly of brass, which represented the Grecian Empire, these two legs of iron, which represented the Roman Empire, and then you have this confederation of ten toes or ten kings that will be in power briefly when the Lord establishes the kingdom of heaven on earth. So this image represents the times of the Gentiles, the time where Gentiles ruled and reigned over Jerusalem from the world's perspective. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a parallel dream, only it's from a heavenly perspective. And rather than this impressive, this image, uh, it's wild beasts. And in this image, you have this lion-like figure, which represented Babylon. You had this bear-like figure, which represented Medo-Persia. You had this leopard-like. By the way, this is not me conjecture. These, these kingdoms are actually defined in Scripture. You had the leopard, which represented the Grecian Empire. Then you had this, this, this scary beast with iron teeth that represented the Roman Empire. And then you had this passage which is key. It's concerning the rest of the beasts. They had their dominion removed. So this period of time where each ruled the world came to an end. And I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and I beheld one like the Son of Man who came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. So God the Son approaching God the Father. And there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So this prophecy, this promise, this picture inside the throne of God where the Son of Man or also the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, approaches the Father and takes the title deed to this kingdom. When you compare this to Daniel chapter 2, this would be the parallel of the kingdom of heaven established on earth. Have I lost anybody there? Have I put everybody to sleep yet? Okay. Okay, just half of you. Very good. I'll work on the other half now. So with that prophetic background as a Jew... Now, let's see what we are introduced to in Revelation chapter 5. Again, I believe that Revelation 2 and 3 is a demonstration of the entirety of the church age, these seven churches in this particular order. I believe Revelation 14, 1, I'm sorry, 4, 1, I believe, others disagree, but I believe that this is the rapture of the church. John heard a sound of a trumpet from heaven, uh, giving the command to come up hither, and immediately he was in the midst of the throne of God with the cherubim and the angelic chorus and, and, and everything that you would expect to find in God's presence and God's throne. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 all deal with that particular setting before chapter 6 begins to deal with the judgments that will be poured out on planet earth. 
Revelation 5.1 said this, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll that was written on the inside and on the outside. On the outside, you had the writing of a legal deed with the requirements needed for one to execute the contents within that scroll. This one sealed with seven seals. And I, John, saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, there are two ways to look at this. Could be an archangel making this declaration. It could be a fallen angel mockingly saying, Who is worthy to open the seals of this scroll and to execute the requirements within? John says in verse 3, And no man in heaven or on earth, neither under the earth, that's everywhere, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders, these 24 elders that had surrounded the throne, again, remember at one time the priesthood was divided into 24 courses during David's time. I believe that this is a picture of the priesthood of believers. Again, my opinion. Weep not, this elder said. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to execute the requirements thereof by loosing the seven seals. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four cherubim, in the midst of the twenty-four elders, stood a lamb, capital L, as it had been slain, having seven horns. Doesn't mean that it was some gross-looking figure with seven horns. Horn is a symbol of power. Eyes are a symbol of knowledge and vision. Seven is God's number for completion. There are some times, and again, you read the Scripture in context and understand what's being said. There are some times where the number seven means seven days, or like seven days in a week is seven specific days. In this particular case, it's not this bloody lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven speaks of having all power and all knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God set forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now think back real quickly. Remember what we saw in, uh, in uh, Daniel chapter uh, 14. I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We saw the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and taking the title deed to the kingdom from him. I think this is the execution of that prophecy. Now, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This obviously goes back to the tribe of Judah. And uh, Jacob had pronounced blessings upon his sons before he died. And he uh, prophesied that Judah would be the tribe of kings. That's corroborated in Genesis 49. So we know that the Messiah would have to come from the tribe of Judah. And even more so, we know that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David. I've put up on the screen several passages in Scripture which corroborate that. Back to Revelation 5. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Inside the holy place there was the golden altar of incense. You can see right in the middle of the screen. You can see the seven-headed golden candlestick on the far side. You can see the table of God's presence on the near side. And in between there, before the Ark of the Covenant, in the 
outer chamber or the holy place is where the priest would come in morning and evening and put a special incense on these hot coals and would offer prayers of intercession before the throne of God. So here in chapter 5, verse 8, we see the same thing. These, uh, these uh, odors, which are the prayers of the saints, and the saints sung a song that couldn't be sung before. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Now, Peter references that we are, in fact, a royal priesthood. We see many passages in the New Testament which reference that we will, in fact, rule and reign on planet earth. We know that Paul rebuked that immature church in Corinth for taking petty issues. Actually, some of them were even serious issues, but should have been handled within the, within the church itself under church government. Well, they were cheating each other and then taking each other to civil court. What an embarrassment they were for the name of Christ in the community of Corinth. And he said this, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world should be judged by you, are you not un- are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that you shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Luke 19, in the parable of the talents, those that were faithful were given authority over areas of real estate. They have authority over ten cities. Other had authority over five. Second Timothy. Paul reminds Timothy that if we suffer for the cause of Christ, we shall also reign with Him. And Revelation 20, verse 4 says this, I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the Word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, I believe that that millennial reign of Christ, what the Jews call the age of the Messiah, Jesus will be king and rule and reign in righteousness. We as his bride will be given authority based upon our faithfulness and service now as to ruling and reigning with him then. I really don't have any other way of explaining what the Scripture says in these passages of Scripture. And I beheld and heard a voice, back to Revelation 5, the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was a myriad, ten thousand times ten thousand, and a thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, you know, boy, think about it, the Mormon tabernacle choir is pretty impressive. Imagine what this choir is going to sound like. They're going to sing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive all power and all riches and all wisdom and all strength and all honor and all glory and all blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, truth, truly. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Again, this seven-sealed scroll, well, what is it? Well, if you look at Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, 
It appears to be the right to rule and reign the kingdom of heaven on earth. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 says that the Son of Man will come and take it from the right hand of the Father. And it's interesting, as we are now seeing this fulfillment of Revelation 7, 13 and 14, I'm sorry, of uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, notice what is said here in Revelation 11. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So, let me summarize. What was the point of Jeremiah purchasing and having legal rights to a piece of property that would be subjugated by a tyrant usurper for a period of time, but was promised that he was the owner, and in time the kinsman redeemer would in fact lay claim to the rightful ownership of that property. Well, I believe the prophetic application is to what we've just explained, how Satan is the temporary possessor of this that is rightfully owned by the Lord Jesus. And this title deed to planet earth is what that seven seal scroll is in Revelation that is unrolled as we see the Lord Jesus laying claim and taking possession of what is, in fact, rightfully His, which, if you look at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, is this title deed. What we see here in Revelation 11 confirms that this is the title deed to planet Earth. So that is the importance and the point of what we just saw uh, there with Hanamiel and Jeremiah and that really shrewd real estate deal that he was instructed to do while he was in prison. <clears throat> All right, I'll tell you what, we have covered a lot tonight. Uh, we are only 15 verses into the chapter, and we will pick up here next week, and we will complete chapter 32. However, as you can see, what we've covered here in these first uh, 15 verses was quite deep, so it took us some time to wade with a D, our way, with a Y, through all this.